Bible in front of you there, I would at this point ask you to turn back to that portion of scripture we read just a few moments ago in John chapter 5, which I'm sure is probably quite a familiar passage to many of us here, this healing at the pool of Bethesda. Now, friends, we have before us in this uh, portion, in this passage of Scripture, we have got an example of the most incredible rejection of Jesus Christ. You see it? A rejection of Jesus. Because even after what goes on here, even after this uh, miraculous healing... We find this guy, a man who fails to to even um, acknowledge Jesus, does he? He he fails to to recognize Jesus and he fails to worship Jesus in any way whatsoever. So, as we begin looking at this portion of scripture, let me throw out a question for you to consider. It's this. Are you rejecting Jesus? Are you rejecting Jesus? Now, even if you're a Christian this morning, okay? Even if you are someone who has been spiritually healed, in the way that you live, in the way that you act, in the way you speak, in the way that you... uh, organize your life in the way that you prioritize your life, are you failing to acknowledge Jesus? Are you failing to worship him as he should be worshipped? Are you failing to honor the Lord Jesus Christ? Very simply, are you rejecting Jesus? Is that you? Okay, let's look at the sign. Let's consider this theme of rejecting Jesus. And really, I think in each, in each of the four points that we'll look at this morning, we'll consider or we'll touch upon ways in which that can be the case, ways in which we can reject our Lord. So, as I said, four points, okay? Four aspects of this healing. So if you're ready, let's look at this text. And let's consider our first point this morning, okay? And that is point one, a place of hopelessness. A place of hopelessness. So the setting for this sign is uh, the pool of Bethesda, isn't it? Now this was... (coughs) Located in the northeast corner of Jerusalem. It was up there in the, the northeast corner of the old town, beside a little gap in the city wall. The little gap was called the Sheep Gate. And if you don't believe me, you can go home and you can Google that because there's been an uh, archaeological dig and the Pool of Bethesda has been discovered. 
and it remains reasonably intact. So that's the pool of Bethesda. But just look at the scene here. You know, just try and imagine the scene of Bethesda, because what regularly occurred here, look at it, it's a, it's a scene of, what is it, desperation, isn't it? It's a scene of utter hopelessness. Because before us we've got a scene of a huge number of disabled people. We've got a huge number of blind people. People with paralysis. And they're all gathering round this pool. They're all round the water in these covered colonnades round the side of the pool. So it's a big scene. It's a major scene of hopelessness. And then what does the author do? What does John do? Well, he kind of, he goes from this big scene and he zooms in. He changes focus on one guy. This man who is described here as an invalid. And this is a guy who is in some state. Because this guy has been an invalid for 38 years. 38 long summers. 38 winters. That's some stretch. Especially when you consider that the life expectancy in Jerusalem at this time was about 38 years. It was about 40 years. And then the hopelessness of the whole thing, it becomes even more striking when we know why this man and why all these people were gathered at the pool I don't know if you noticed it, because it's at the footnote at the bottom of the page. <coughs> and the footnote tells us that basically these people at the pool, they believed that an angel would come. That an angel would come down to this pool, that the angel would create a disturbance in the water, and that the first person who managed to fall into the water after this disturbance, that that first person would be healed. So you've got all these people. Isn't it such a team? Lying there day after day, month after month, year after year, all pinning their hopes on this crazy, this ludicrous sounding superstition. So it is a pathetic picture, isn't it? It's a pathetic scene, a scene of helplessness, and hopelessness. And yet, isn't this quite a, an arresting illustration of the world that we live in? Isn't this quite an arresting picture here? A parallel with the world that you and I inhabit. Because you see, throughout the Bible, Physical illness, it is used as a metaphor for a spiritual reality. You get that physical illness in the Bible is used time and time again as a kind of parallel or a pointer to a deeper spiritual problem. And so we see here at Bethesda a real parallel with London. With London in the 21st century, don't we? Because 
You know, let's face it. If we look with spiritual eyes on London, what do we see? If we look with spiritual eyes, well, we see an awful lot of spiritual disability, don't we? We see spiritual blindness aplenty. We see people looking for spiritual help and healing, but looking in all the wrong places for that. But that's fine, okay? It's very, very easy for us to sit in here and say, oh, it's a hopeless scene, and that applies to the world outside. But this is a hopeless scene, and it applies to us in this building as much as it applies to the world outside. Because you see, folks, even as Christians, we are all too prone to try and deal with the problems we face by ourselves, aren't we? You know, this is a picture of Bethesda of a man who's trying to deal with this problem himself and he can't do it. It's the same with the people gathered at Bethesda. They are trying to help themselves. They are trying to get themselves into the pool when Jesus is standing amongst them all the time. Now that sounds like us, doesn't it? That's what we try and do. And we mustn't. So here, we see that in no matter what it is that you're facing this week, no matter what it is, do not try and do that thing alone. Okay? Brothers and sisters in Jesus, hear this. Do not sideline Jesus. Do not reject him in this way. Instead, look to him. Humbly involve Jesus Christ in your life, in every area of your life this week, so that your situation, unlike Bethesda, it doesn't become a place of hopelessness. A place of hopelessness. Okay. Let's move on. Let's think of a second thing (coughs) this morning. Let's consider the perceptiveness and the power of Jesus. Okay? The perceptiveness and the power of Jesus. So I reckon one of the uh, potentially uh, amusing and entertaining things about living in a large city such as this is when we see locals asked really daft questions by people who are visiting the city. (coughs) Now, we used to see this time and time again in Edinburgh uh, when I lived there. You know, we'd hear these stories about people being stopped in the street, locals, real Edinburgh people, and being asked by tourist questions like, why did they build build Edinburgh Castle up on the hill? Why didn't they make it more convenient and build it down beside the shops? That sort of thing. And no doubt it's the same in London. You know, you hear the stories of people working in uh, 
tourist informations and being asked, you know, what time does the circus start at Piccadilly? Or uh, why did they build Windsor Castle underneath a flight path? That sort of thing. Ridiculous, daft, stupid questions. And is that what we've got here in John 5? You know, do we have here just a daft question? Because what happened? Well, Jesus goes to the pool, doesn't he? And he goes to this man, a man who's, remember, he's been an invalid for 38 years. And what does Jesus ask him? A man who has been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Now, does that sound to you like a pretty daft question, is it? (coughs) Well, no, it's not. It is an incredibly perceptive question. Because we mustn't have the idea that everybody at this pool at Bethesda wanted to get well. Of course, some people did. But that wasn't universal. Because at this time in Jerusalem, a beggar would make a pretty decent living. At this time in Jerusalem, if you were in trouble like this, there was a level of care and a level of mercy that you could expect. So this question isn't just Jesus stating the obvious. This is a question that is challenging this guy's sincerity. Okay? So firstly, it's a perceptive question. But then, okay, then what happens? Then the lightning strikes, doesn't it? It's like that. Uh, did you watch the, the scene on the BBC website this week? Where the lightning strikes uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Well, that's what it's like here. Because bang, Jesus heals the man. Do you see it in verse 8? Jesus says to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And note that Jesus' power there is instant power, isn't it? He heals him, or he says this, and at once... The man was cured. So it's instant power. But it's not just instant. It's complete power too. Here's this poor man. He's been in this terrible, terrible state for 38 years. A man who can barely move. And Jesus heals him. And he goes from that state to a man who can walk fully. A man who has the power and strength to carry his mat. So it's instant and it's complete. And the third thing is that it comes by the voice of Jesus. Jesus can simply speak. Just utters a word and the man is healed. So friends, does this question that Jesus asks, 
And the power that he demonstrates, does that not make you sit up and think? Does that question not challenge you as believers this morning? Because do you, do you want to get well? Believers, do you want to get well? Because sometimes we don't, do we? Let's be honest. Sometimes we've no interest in getting well. Sometimes we're happy to, to cling on to certain sins in our lives. There are ages of our lives that we are just happy to keep, whether it is sexual immorality, whether it is greed, whether it is drunkenness, whether it is something like gossiping. There are areas of our lives that we would rather not be healed from. We reject Jesus. Friends, it is time to stop these things, okay? It is time that we draw a line under these these patterns of repeated sin. Let's ask Jesus Christ to forgive us for these things, to help us stop us in these things, and to heal us instantly, to heal us completely, and to heal us through the power of his word. The perceptiveness and power of Jesus. Now, in Inverness, where I'm from, Inverness in Scotland, there used to be many, many years ago in the centre of town a really dingy cinema called La Scala. La Scala Cinema. And in years gone by, and I'm sure most of you will remember this, you always had to queue up to get into a cinema, which is fine, that's, that's no problem, except, of course, in the 1960s and 1970s in Inverness, because in those days, the cinema, it was a wicked place to be. In the Scottish Highlands, if you were seen going into the cinema, well, this, the cinema was the property of Satan. It was the work of the devil. <coughs> and that's all very well and good. But there was a free Presbyterian lady, a lady, a very, very strict and conservative lady, and she bought a flat overlooking the cinema. So this was a disaster for Invernesians. And I have heard stories time and time again of lovely Scottish summer nights in Inverness. It was glorious warm evenings. But if you were to drive past La Scala, you would find a queue of people with jackets on and hoods up and scarves around their face, all trying to hide themselves from the look of the lady, the free Presbyterian lady trying to make sure she wouldn't spot you going into the cinema. And that 
is the sort of nonsense that we're faced with in the third point, the third aspect of the sign, and that is a pathetic response to the healing. A pathetic response to the healing. Because there's really quite an abrupt change that happens in this portion of Scripture, okay? It happens in verse 9. Because up to now we've looked at the healing, and then it changes, it flicks. And it all then focuses on what day the healing took place. Do you see that verse 9? It says, once a man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked, then it changes. The day, the day that this took place was a Sabbath. Now this healing, it did not go down well with the religious establishment, did it? That is an understatement. These Jews here, the Pharisees, they were absolutely furious about this. And they try and track down and identify who dared, dared to do this on a Sabbath. And we must note that the guy here, the man who was carrying his mat, he did not break the Sabbath. Okay, it says he broke the law. The law that is being referred to is the Mishnah. This was A set of man-made rules that grew up to surround the Sabbath. 39 rules. Prohibitions about what you mustn't do on the Sabbath. And one of these prohibitions was, you must dare not carry anything from one point to another on the Sabbath. So he is not breaking God's law. He is breaking man-made, crazy, crazy man-made rules and regulations. And folks, the principle of that, the principle in this passage, the principle of legalism, it is something that kills churches. Legalism is one of the most effective and pervasive weapons in the devil's armory. It kills churches. It kills denominations. You see, what happens is that we fall into a trap. The same trap as the Jews here. We start adding requirements to God's law. You know what it's like. We've got a set of likes and dislikes about how church work should be done, about what people should say, about what people should wear. We Reject Jesus in favor of Jesus plus. We reject the beautiful simplicity of the grace of the gospel. We reject that in favor of the gospel or our interpretation of it plus these rules about what we wear and say and act. Now I ask you, Be honest. Is there an element of truth in that for you? Is there? Well, you see, this is dangerous stuff. This is really dangerous, dangerous stuff. Because when we have these little additions, the devil gets a hold of them. And they build up and they build up and they build up. And eventually what happens? We become more passionate about our little likes and dislikes 
than we are about the fact that people outside are dying and going to hell. You see, these Jews in this portion of Scripture, they didn't care about this man. Did you see? They don't ask or mention the healing. They don't care about the man. They only care about the mat. They don't ask about his health and the healing. They only care that he was carrying a mat on the Sabbath. Friends, we can't be like that. We can't and mustn't offer the world outside just a set of moralistic rules and regulations that is ineffective. We must offer the world outside the simple truth of the grace and the goodness and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a pathetic response to the healing. Okay, let's conclude and let's consider just a a fourth thing very briefly, the primary function of the sign, the primary function of the sign. Now I'm guessing by now that everyone in this room knows that the Pope has resigned. He has resigned. And I know that there are quite a few people in the congregation looking for work just now, so... um, If you need anyone to give you a reference for your application to the papacy, I am more than than willing to to fill one out for you. But his resignation, it was accompanied by this sort of instant chatter, wasn't it? There was a lot of discussion about why exactly the Pope had resigned. Now, we knew it was a health issue. But was there a specific thing... Why exactly had he gone? Had there been a heart attack? Had there been a stroke? What was it? And that's what we need to work out here in John 5. Why exactly did Jesus heal this man? Why exactly did he do it? Because think about it. This is God. This is Jesus. He knows what the reaction is going to be. He knows that this man here is not going to worship him. So why do it? Why heal the man? Well, at every step over the last few weeks, as we've looked at signs in this sermon series, we've looked at the sign, haven't we? Through a filter. We've looked at it through a lens. To understand the sign, we have to look through John 20, 31. It says, these signs were written or are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. God. The signs are there to tell us about who Jesus is. So what is this sign, the healing? What does it tell us about the identity of Jesus? Two things, just in a word or two. One, the sign tells us that Jesus is the eternal Son. It tells us that Jesus is the Son, the Son of God. How? Well, in verse 17, after this sign, Jesus says this. He says, my father is always at work. To this very day, 
and I too am working. Do you begin to see it? Do you begin to see what's happening here? Jesus knows that by healing on the Sabbath, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that there's going to be this monumental Jewish backlash against this. And he knows that in turn, that this is going to give him an opportunity to stand in public and claim equality with the Father. He says in verse 18, For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. So Jesus is revealed as the Son. But lastly, secondly here, and amazingly, amazingly, this sign, and performing this sign, in healing this man, Jesus confirms himself as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. How? We see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this, the prophet Isaiah wrote a list. And it was a list of things that the Messiah would do when he came into the world. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah, he wrote a list of indicators so that you and I would recognize the Savior, that we would recognize the Messiah. So what did he say? What did Isaiah write? Well, let me read it to you. He said this. He said, when the Savior comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. When the Messiah comes, the lame will leap like a deer and the mute will shout for joy. When the Savior comes, the lame will walk. The lame will leap for joy. This sign, friends, it tells us that Jesus Christ is the Son, and it tells us that He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So don't be like this guy here. What? What a fool this man is, isn't he? What a fool. Confronted with his power, confronted with his revelation, what does he do? He scuttles off like a rat to the Jews. And he betrays Jesus. There's no faith, there's no repentance, there's no insight. Don't be like him. Don't spiritually betray Jesus. Don't. Without him, we are all spiritually paralyzed. Now, friends, Jesus Christ, he stands before us this morning, doesn't he? 
And he asks us that one simple question. He asks us this question, perhaps asks you for the first time this morning. He asks, do you want to get well? What a great question, isn't it? Do you want to get well? Well, if you do, don't reject Jesus. Don't do that. Instead, look to him. Because he is the eternal son. He is the Messiah. He is the savior of the world. Let's pray.